there have been some questions that have come up. These are actual questions concerning the eclipse that I thought you would find very interesting. And one of the questions was that somebody asked, do you have to register for the eclipse? And um, <laughs> another question that was asked was um, to, um, to some of the scientists and, and people that uh, are teaching on the eclipse and teachers. One was school starts on the 21st of August. Has anyone considered moving the eclipse activities, the time of it? So. Thirdly, how did Wyoming get picked for the path of totality? And then a the fourth question was, do my pets have to wear the eclipse special glasses on the day of the eclipse? So anyway, it's interesting. Enjoy it. I'm going to enjoy the 95% here in Greeley tomorrow. But if you're headed up, be careful. We do want to get into our study uh, as we are in chapter 21, starting at verse 5. As we read, then as some spoke of the temple, how it was adorned with beautiful stones and donations, he said, these things which you see, the days will come in which not one stone will be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. In verse 7, so they asked him, saying, teacher, but what, when will these things be? And what sign will there be when these things are about to take place? So, Father, as we just settle our hearts now to hear your word, I pray that our hearts would be touched and, Lord, our hearts would be stirred because your son is going to come back. And so, Lord, these words are important, that this chapter is important for us to consider. So may we be attentive right now, our ears open and our hearts soft before you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, keep in mind, as we enter into this teaching of Jesus to his disciples it's called the Olivet Discourse. Also, it's recorded in Matthew chapter 24 and Mark chapter 13. It is the longest teaching of Jesus in the Gospels next to the Sermon on the Mount, which is a little bit longer in length. Jesus has just finished the day. It's at the end of the day, his last day, full day of public ministry. He is now withdrawing from the religious leaders that have been coming to him over the last few days, trying to ask him questions, trying to trick him and trap him to find a reason to have him be arrested and handed over to, to the authorities of Rome. They are very furious with him. They want to destroy him. But as they came with those questions, as we saw in the previous chapter, Jesus would answer them perfectly. He knew what they were up to. And so perfect and complete was his response to their testing him that chapter 20, verse 40 tells us that they dare not ask him any more questions. The other gospel writers tell us how the people marveled at the way that he answered. And Mark tells us that the common people heard him gladly. So Jesus, as he addressed the religious leaders, as we ended last time, one last time, he's trying to get them to understand, to see who he is. And he would ask them a question. After they dare not ask him any questions, he asked them a question, the Christ, the Messiah, whose son is he? And he would quote from Psalm 110, which they all would ascribe as a, psalm, a messianic psalm. And Jesus would point out how David himself said in the book of Psalms, by the Holy Spirit, as Mark writes, that not only is the Messiah, the Christ, going to be in the line of David, the son of David, but also David calls him Lord. He's going to be the Lord of David. And so here we see 
that Jesus at that time would then turn to the scribes and Pharisees, rebuke them for their hypocrisy and all their religiousness. And Matthew chapter 23 is dedicated a whole chapter to that as he gives a series of woes to them. And then as he then leaves them, he withdraws from the religious leaders. He is withdrawing from the multitudes for the last time. And he walks up on the temple proper there and he passes the court of the Gentiles. He would go to the court of the women. Most of the people are gone. They're retiring for the evening, going to the place where they are staying. And the courtyard that held thousands of people would be empty except for a widow woman that is there that puts two mites in the treasury box. And he, opposite the treasury, as the Gospels tell us, would see that, how she gave, and how she gave sacrificially, and as he would commend her. That's where we left off last time. And this is where we pick up our text now. He is headed out of of the temple precincts to go to the Mount of Olives for the evening. And as he's walking across the Temple Mount area, Mark records that one of the disciples said to him, Teacher, see what manner of stones and what buildings are here. And I think that the reason that perhaps that disciple would say that, and if I had to guess which one would say that, I would guess Peter. We don't know for sure. But you know how Peter pipes up and asks things and kind of impulsive and all of this. But as we have just seen that over the last couple days, as Jesus having the confrontation with the religious leaders, he comes in on Palm Sunday and the people are moved and they're crying out, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, son of David, king of Israel. They said, tell your disciples to be silent. This is blasphemy. And Jesus said, if they are silent, the very rocks are going to cry out. And Jesus would say, you didn't know the day of your visitation. The next day he goes into the temple. He cleanses the temple. He rebuked those religious leaders by saying, my father's house, which is a house of prayer for all the nations, you have made it into a den of thieves. We know that the other Gospels record that he cursed the fig tree that had a lot of leaves but no fruit, and and the fig tree being symbolic of the nation. The unfruitful religiousness of the leaders. There was a lot of activity, a lot of religiousness, but no fruit unto God. He would turn to the people and tell the parable of the wicked vine dressers. Again, it was an indictment against the leaders of the nation. And then in Matthew 23, as I've already mentioned, he would give a series of eight woes. And then at the end of the chapter, you see that he laments over Jerusalem. He says, your house is left to you desolate. So with that all in mind, I think that after this long day of of the contention that the religious leaders had towards Jesus and trying to come against him, the long couple days that are over, that they're headed off the temple. And as they're walking across the temple proper, one of the disciples comment, look at this magnificent temple. Look at these beautiful stones, these large, ornate stones. And the temple at that time was one of the wonders of the world. It was a magnificent place. And it was like the disciples were saying, it isn't that bad, is it? It isn't that terrible? Kind of like trying to calm him down or whatever they're thinking. And I picture Jesus stopping and kind of pointing at the temple and all you know, the buildings around and the courtyards. And he says, all of this, not one stone's going to be left upon another. It's all going to be thrown down. 
Now, just a quick reminder as we talk about the temple that Herod the Great, that would rule during the time that Jesus was born, that as he ruled over Judea, he was called the Great because he was a great builder. And when he came into power, he began to expand the second temple. It was known as the Rubbable's Temple. You see, 500 years before this, that it was Zerubbabel, the civil leader, and Joshua, the high priest. They came back with a remnant of people after the Babylonian captivity. And they would push the stones aside that were there as Solomon's temple had been destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar and his soldiers, the first temple. And they rebuilt the temple. And that temple, the rebuilt temple, the second temple, was a modest temple. And it was that way for a long time. But we see that Herod the Great came on the scene, and he wanted to to rebuild the temple. He actually wanted to tear down the old temple, rebuild a new temple. The religious leaders said, don't tear down our temple. So he remodeled it, but it was an incredible project that took place. He greatly expanded the temple courts to where they would hold thousands of worshipers. He used huge stones, very precisely cut. And we've shown you pictures, and and you can see it if you get that DVD of Israel in our last trip. But we've shown you pictures of the Herodian stones that they are cut so precise that they, when they are placed on top of each other and next to each other in building buildings and walls, they, there's no mortar that is used. It is fits perfectly, and it's like a hairline fracture between the stones. That's how precise it was. They marvel at how they were able to do that. So large were some of the foundational stones that some of those foundational stones that you can look at were 60 feet long, they were 12 feet high, and 8 feet thick, 180 tons. They don't know how they got those stones in place. They say there isn't a crane in the world that can lift one of those stones. The temple itself was 23 stories high. Now, if you look at the Temple Mount today and you see that picture of the Dome of the Rock, the temple was twice as high as the Dome of the Rock, and it was covered with gold plates. It had gold spikes on it to keep the birds off of it. Josephus, the Jewish historian, tells us that if you stood on the Mount of Olives there, looking at the temple, the sun, the Mount of Olives just being directly east of the temple, the sun coming up behind you when it reflected off the gold, so brilliant was the reflection that you had to turn away. You couldn't look at it directly. Where there was no gold, that Rome would bring in blocks of marble, such pure white that it would look like that there was snow on the temple. Now, when Herod began to remodel the temple at this time here, he had started that project 48 years before this time that we're reading about. Herod the Great has long passed off the scene. The the project continues. Rome continues the project. 48 years. We know that because in John chapter 2, in that chapter, in Jesus' first year of his ministry, Jesus would say to the religious leaders that destroy this temple in three days, I'll raise it up. And, of course, he's speaking about his resurrection. But they're thinking, destroy this temple? What do you mean? It's taken us 46 years to build this temple. But that project of remodeling the temple would continue. It's been going on for 48 years. would continue for another 30 years after Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. And it would be until 63 AD, finally, all the workers were dismissed. So it was a a magnificent building. 63 AD is only seven years before the temple would be destroyed. 
So one of the disciples, they're walking across the courtyards, the magnificent temple overlaid with gold and marble and all of this. And one of the disciples say, look at this beautiful, huge, ornate stones. Look at this magnificent building. Can it really be that bad? You've talked about your house is left to you desolate. And Jesus said, not one stone's going to be left upon another. And it must have shocked the disciples when he said that. Absolutely floored them. Jesus exits the eastern gate. He goes past the Kidron Valley. Begins to ascend up to Mount of Olives, past the Garden of Gethsemane. As he gets to the Mount of Olives... Matthew tells us it was while he's on the Mount of Olives that his disciples came to him. He is opposite the temple, great view of the temple. Mark gospel tells us that it was Peter and James and John and Andrew, these two pair of brothers that asked him privately. And this is where Dr. Luke picks up that we just read. They asked, when will these things be? That is the destruction of the temple. Matthew records, they asked, what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? Because when Jesus said not one stone is going to be placed upon another, they must have thought it has to be the end of the world. Jesus talking about how Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. He will talk about that in this chapter. And so they're thinking it has to be the end of the age. It must be your coming at that time. And so they're asking these questions. They're putting it all together. It would be like if I told you that Greeley was going to be leveled. The whole city is going to be leveled to where not a single building is going to be standing, you would think, wouldn't you, naturally, that it must be the end of the world. So here these guys are, are come to him in this private briefing that we are privileged to listen in on. You know, what is, you know, the, the sign of your coming? What is the end of the age? When is this going to happen, the destruction of the temple? Now, perhaps we've heard a lot about end-time prophecy and and there's all kinds of information that is out there, websites, books, everything on the subject. And one of the things that can happen is that perhaps there may be some that have passed through this morning thinking, okay, here we go again. Here we go talking about the signs of the end, and I've heard this, or I've heard many teachings on this. And if we're not careful, we can become very complacent in a sense or dismiss it or think it's not important to talk about these things that are covered in this chapter. There are Christians that get very frustrated with it at times because there are those who have come along during church history and have set dates when the Lord's going to come back or they point to certain signs. You know, Y2K recently. You remember that even though it was 17 years ago, there were those and even Christian authors that were writing books about it's the end of the age and all of this going to happen and, you know, nothing happened. We hear a lot about blood moons and Shemitahs and, you know, even the eclipse that's happening tomorrow, there's going to be plenty of people that are going to be standing on I-25 and in those areas with signs saying the eclipse equals the judgment of God or the end of the age, things like that. There's a lot of information going out. Some of you have been asking about what's this that uh, on the websites and, and stuff like that saying that Revelation chapter 12 is going to be fulfilled next month. Sign in heaven. You know, uh, the constellations lining up to where it points to Revelation chapter 12. All these things, and you look at it, are they signs? Is it, 
something that we can look at and, and is pointing to the soon return of Jesus Christ. And what happens when we see these things, we become ambivalent about the coming of the Lord. Is it important? Is it not important? You know, Christians uh, begin to dismiss all these things, pastors and all of that. And so the return of the Lord, the end of the age, isn't discussed or even taught in many churches. We can forget the exhortation of Jesus and the writers of the New Testament that you and I are to watch and to be sober and discerning of the days in which we're living in, but yet it can be ignored or we get complacent or we, we get desensitized or dull about it. And so we need to keep in mind that Jesus has already told us in Luke's gospel that I come when you are least expected and an hour that you do not know. The question is, do you believe that the Lord could come back in a day like today? And I think that in the honesty of many people's heart, they say, I don't expect him to come back today. We don't know if he could come back today, but he could. He comes at a time when you are least expected. So be careful. Be careful. We don't know the day or the hour. But Jesus would say, take heed to yourselves, lest your heart be weighed down with carousing and drunkenness and the cares of this world. And that day come upon you unexpectedly. Paul was writing to a young church the church at Thessalonica in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, that the day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night, for when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction will come upon them. And you, brethren, are not in darkness that this day should overtake you. In Matthew chapter 25, after this teaching, he tells of the parable of the wise and foolish virgin, virgins. Five were wise, five were foolish. And, and the foolish ones had no oil for their lamps, and they were not ready when the cry went out, the bridegroom is coming, come out to meet him. The five wise ones had oil for their lamps, and when he came, they were prepared. Peter, in his second epistle, right before he's put to death, would say that in the last days, scoffers are going to come, saying, where's the return of the Lord? Since your forefather's time, all things continue as they were. Let me tell you, the days in which we are living in. We know that there are signs, that the scripture talks about the role of nations, that we can look at it and we can see that it's pointing to the fact that we are in the last days. Things don't just continue as they were. Everything is happening. The roles of the nation, the leaders, is happening to where it's going to culminate to the return of Jesus Christ where he's going to establish his kingdom. We know that Jesus in this chapter will talk about the perplexity of nations in distress. There's going to be such difficulties and that nations are going to face, and we see that. We see how nations are mentioned, that they're going to play a role in the last days. We know that Paul would write, we covered this a couple Wednesdays ago, that Timothy, in the last days, it is going to be perilous times. No, it's going to be perilous times. And he said that there's going to be a form of godliness, but denying its power. That there's going to be counterfeits that are going to come on the scene, just as it was Jambres and Jamres who resisted Moses. Evil men and imposters are going to grow worse and worse. So it isn't going to get more rosy, more cheery, you know, all of that. It's going to be perilous times. And there are signs and there's a perfect prophetic scenario that is given to us that we are to pay attention to. And we see the world unraveling before us. I read where one person said, 
that we who are in high levels of intelligence, we don't sleep well. And the whole world is being held together by scotch tape and rubber bands, and the whole thing can unravel at any time. A couple weeks ago, we were wondering, even a week ago, we were wondering, are we on the brink of a nuclear war with North Korea? Here's a nation that's threatening the United States, the dictator, with nuclear weapons, having the technology, some were saying, to put a nuclear warhead on a, on a continental ballistic missile. And then threatening us and threatening Guam. And he's backed off from that threat, but you're wondering, is that threat real? Here's the thing. You still have the dictator of North Korea that has nuclear weapons and advancing the technology to be able to strike in the western you know, part of, of the world. You have Iran pursuing nuclear weapons, even though they say they're not. They are threatening in the last week to pull out of the last nuclear deal with the United States. They're threatening to wipe out Israel, to wipe them off the face of the earth. You have the situation in Syria. You have Russia. You have terrorism. Did Jesus have something to say about these things? Does the Bible talk about these things? We're going to see that it does. God's word given to us. Billy Graham, who ministered to many presidents, I think, since Eisenhower's time, and world leaders, has said that many presidents and world leaders have asked him about Armageddon and the end of the age. And Jesus is going to talk about the signs of the end. And the very first thing that Jesus will tell these disciples is to take heed. But we can come up with reasons not to concern ourselves with the signs of the end or of the times. And one of the reasons is because of those who have come along and they've set dates or they stand on the mountaintop with white robes on or on housetops, you know, waiting for the rapture to happen or the gloom and doom mentality and the blood moons are going to happen, which has come and gone and passed or Y2K or all these other things. And you Christians have been talking about the return of the Lord for 2000 years now. And people can look at us and think that we're weird and a bunch of kooks and fanatics. Listen, when Jesus tells us to watch, when you see that in the scripture, it always takes on the meaning that we are to be watching means that you are to be busy. Occupy till I come, as we saw in chapter 19, as they told that parable of the minus, that the, the master went away to a far com- country to receive a kingdom to himself. And then he's going to come back. In the meantime, what has been entrusted to us, and that is the gospel, occupy till I come. So you have Christians and many pastors that won't talk about or teach about the rapture of the church, the second coming, the tribulation period, and so forth. And then there are those, as we see the doctrine growing in evangelical churches called the replacement theology, that Israel doesn't play a major role in the last days. And they have forfeited the promise that God gave to them. And the church is now spiritual Israel. When we see in the scriptures very clear that they have received the promise of the Lord, that he is going to be faithful to see that promise through in restoring Israel. And we cannot ignore the gathering of the Jews in Israel and them becoming a nation once again because many of the end time prophecies, specific prophecies that are given to us, cannot happen unless the Jews are back in their homeland and they are a nation once again. And for Christians to ignore what God has done in bringing the Jews back and rebirthing Israel, we can't ignore that at all. And Israel is God's blueprint 
for the end times. And in Luke's account here of the Olivet Discourse, he is going to focus on Jerusalem and the times of the Gentiles being fulfilled. So he will talk about the times of the Gentiles. And then in Romans chapter 11, the fullness of the Gentiles. Very important considerations, but they're two different terms. We will talk about that. CNN took a poll a few years ago. Tells us that over 50% of people in America have questions about the end of the world that two-thirds of people in America think about how the world will end. And so having a good knowledge of what the Bible says about prophecy, listen, it is a very powerful evangelistic tool for the church. You have hope to give to others. So why would we say we're not going to talk about it or teach on it or we can't know when we can know We can know some very definite things that point to the return of Jesus Christ. How can we become, as I said, ambivalent about the return of the Lord? And Jesus says, take heed. Take heed, listen. The Bible is the only book that dare give predictive prophecy and claims to be 100% true. That is the demand of, of the scriptures. No other book claims that. One scholar that I read... He said there's over a thousand prophecies in the Bible. Five hundred of them have been fulfilled. And you can see that as you read in Genesis how Abraham, you're going to be the father of a great nation. And we know that Abraham was told that your descendants are going to be in Egypt for four generations, 400 years. There have been many prophecies given about the nations and leaders and the captivity of Israel and Judah and all those things that have taken place. But we also know there's still 500 more prophecies that remain to be fulfilled. There were 109 specific prophecies concerning Jesus' first coming, and every single one of them were fulfilled to the exact detail and understand that the chance or probability of that happening is ridiculous. It's off the charts. Numbers that we cannot comprehend. 109 prophecies concerning the birth and ministry and death and burial and resurrection of Jesus fulfilled perfectly. And know this, that there are 224 prophecies to be fulfilled about a second coming. You think it's an important subject? In the New Testament, there are seven references about being born again. I would say that's a very important subject. In the New Testament, repentance and faith, there are 20 references. Baptism, whether it's water baptism or of the Spirit, um, in the body of Christ, there are 70 references. There are 300 references to the Lord's coming in the 260 chapters of the New Testament. That is one out of every 30 verses. 23 of the 27 New Testament books mention the Lord's coming. The ones that don't, personal letter to Philemon, little epistles of 2nd and 3rd John, and in the book of Galatians. Jesus refers to his second coming at least 21 times, and there are 1,527 Old Testament passages that refer to the second coming. And every time the Bible mentions the first coming, the second coming is mentioned eight times. So you can see that in God's word, this is a very important subject. And on top of that, there is a warning that is given of the dullness of people's hearts in the last days. Some are going to be scoffers. 
Don't be overtaken. Be sober. Be vigilant. Be watching. Don't be weighed down. Pray always. And the Lord gives warning, and that has always been something consistent with his nature. He has always done that. He did that with the flood. Noah was a preacher of of righteousness. And for 120 years, with the building of the ark and the message of Noah, they were warned. And Jesus said in Luke chapter 17, my coming will be like the days of Noah. They were married and were given in marriage. They ate and they drank until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. There was a whole lot of people that were wrong and eight people that were right. Jesus said the days of the Son of Man is not only like Noah's day, but Lot's day. And they ate and they drank and they bought and they sold and they planted and and built. It was really a happening place. But there was great sin. And when the angels came, Lot and his family couldn't believe that God was going to destroy Sodom. It was Lot that went to his son-in-laws and and warned them. and, And they just laughed at their father-in-law laughed at him. It was Lot's wife that longed to stay, and finally the angels had to grab Lot and his family, his other two daughters, and usher them out to safety, and then fire fell from heaven. But what is interesting in Genesis chapter 19, verse 22, you might want to jot it down, that the angels said Lot and to his family, listen, you need to get out because I cannot do anything to this city until you're in that place of safety. I find that to be very fascinating because I believe it's a picture and a reminder of the rapture of the church. That he's going to take us out of and away from the hour of tribulation that shall come upon the whole earth to test those who dwell on the earth, Revelation chapter 3. And it's interesting, as we read from Isaiah already, but Isaiah, it tells us in chapter 26, that come my people, enter your chambers and shut the doors behind you. Hide yourself, as it were, for a little moment until the indignation is past. For behold, the Lord comes out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. The earth will also disclose her blood and will no more cover her slain. That I believe that he's going to take his bride out of and away from the hour of tribulation where he's going to then pour out his wrath on a Christ-rejected world. He's going to put us to a place of safety And we see that Jesus has warned about what will happen. And this discourse, he is warning his disciples. And he's going to speak and continue to give warning. And listen, he is warning us now. Because he is coming. And he warns us not to be like the religious leaders that could discern the weather, the sky, you know, and the signs of the sky, but not the coming of the Son of Man. Listen, we get all kinds of warnings, don't we? We get weather warnings, you know, food recalls, all this. We got signs that guide us as we drive down the road and signs that help us and direct us. Yet when it comes spiritually, we can ignore all of that. We ignore the warnings that are given. We ignore the direction of God gives to us spiritually. And keep in mind that the greatest heart in the universe stands behind these words. And he is telling us these things for our benefit that we may be wise and not caught off guard and be able to tell others what we know. Two-thirds of Americans 
are concerned and interested in the end of the age. They hear words like Antichrist and Armageddon and the second coming. And we know that there are those that dismiss all of that, but there are those who are wondering and they see the world around us unravel before their very eyes. And I think even people who are not Christians, that they see how messed up and mixed up this world is. And they're wondering, what is the answer? You and I, we have the answer. So be sensitive to the leading of the Lord when your family or those out in the field, guys, or in your office or at school, the subject of North Korea comes up. The subject of Russia and Syria and the Middle East or terrorism. You can ask them, what do you think about that? What do you think is how it's all going to turn out? You know, the Bible does talk about those things. And, and when we do that in a very sensitive way, in the leading of the Holy Spirit to guide us to talk to people, many will listen to us. It's a powerful evangelistic tool to this world. And it is important for you and I to know the signs which we're going to talk about next time. This is just an introduction to the chapter and to this teaching. And the, there is only one hope, and it is not this world, but the one who is truly the Lord of lords and the King of all kings, who came the first time to die for our sins. The one who is going to come back and take us home. And he's going to establish his kingdom. And it will only be then that righteousness will cover the earth as waters cover the sea, as Isaiah says. We don't have to be weird about it. We don't have to pull out all our charts, you know, and all of this. But we can tell them there is hope. And there are people all around us that need to hear the truth. And there are those that will listen if we are sensitive and wise, as I mentioned, to the leading of the Lord. There may be those in that discussion that may say, you know what, I'm not concerned about the end of the world because my world is unraveling before me. And we can tell them that they can cry out to God. Just as David wrote in Psalm 61, Hear my cry, O God, attend to my prayer. From the end of the earth I will cry to you when my heart is overwhelmed. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. David writing that at a time when he was at the end of his world. And there are those that you can talk to when they're at the end of their rope, the end of their world. You can tell them they can cry out to God, to a loving God who sent his son to die for them, to give them hope. That he loves them, wants to save them, forgive them. To give them eternal life. I've mentioned this before, just recently on Wednesday night, but you remember Daniel. That Daniel, that he was in the courtyard of Nebuchadnezzar, his right-hand man. When Nebuchadnezzar died, there in chapter 4, he gives his testimony. He would die, and you don't really hear of Daniel, chapter 5, that Nebuchadnezzar's grandson comes on the throne 20 years later, and all of a sudden his grandson, he's having this big party with the, the officials of Babylon. They're toasting to the gods of Babylon, uh, a thousand of them, and all of a sudden, in the middle of that, this hand comes riding on the wall behind them, and, and he sees it, and Belshazzar, the, the king of Babylon, he, he just is terrified. He freaks out. And he calls for his soothsayers and the magicians and, and all of them, the 
magicians and what does it mean? What's, what's the interpretation? They couldn't, they couldn't give the interpretation. And one of them finally said that there is a man, Daniel, that ministered to your grandfather and he will interpret and he gives truth. So they sent for Daniel. And Daniel there, an elderly man, he comes out and he says, I'm going to tell you what the handwriting says. I'll interpret the handwriting on the wall. It was not a good message for Belshazzar. You know, there's all kinds of people making predictions and what's going to happen here and there. But you know the truth. And you can come and give them the interpretation of what the handwriting on the wall is. That this world is going to come to a very difficult, devastating end. But we don't have to be afraid. Paul would say to the church at Thessalonica when he talked about the rapture of the church and the day of the Lord, your children of the light, not of the dark, that this day should overtake you. He would say, comfort one another with these words. And you can bring comfort to others, knowing that the Lord's going to come for us. You see, Jesus starts this whole prophetic passage by saying, what you think is secure, it's not secure. This temple, these huge stones, this great building, within 40 years, exactly what he said would take place. Not one stone would be left upon another. And if that happened in the 40 years, the prophecies that he gave that still haven't been fulfilled concerning his second coming will be fulfilled every dot and every tittle. Jerusalem was a beautiful city at this time. And it ends up being destroyed and burnt and leveled. And this world is going to come to a devastating end. And our security is not in this world. It's in him who says, listen, I am coming back for you. I care for you. I'm your hope. And I am your salvation. And I've made provision because he cried out from the cross, it is finished. I've done the work. I've paid the price. And now you come in faith. And you surrender your life to him. And then you live for him. We are going to be told the signs. And once again, that the Lord's coming back. So the question is this morning, are you asleep? Are you just complacent? Are you holding tight to the world? The Lord is coming back. And the word of Jesus Christ will come to pass. Are we living in the expectancy of the return of the Lord? And even as John would write, he who has this hope, Paul called it the blessed hope, purifies himself. We live for him, keep our eyes on him. Jesus said, when you begin to see these things come to pass, look up and rejoice, for your redemption draws near. So, Father, we thank you for these words. We thank you. Lord, for it's this incredible discourse that we're just beginning to get into. But, Father, I pray that it would stir our hearts, remind us how we are to be the faithful, wise servant that is looking. You come at a time that we do not know. We don't know the day or the hour, but we don't want to be caught off guard. We want to be wise. 
We want to be watching. We want to be sober. We want to be vigilant. We want to be occupying till you come because the time is short and we are rushing towards eternity. So I want to pray this morning for anybody that may be here in the sanctuary or in the coffee shop that's full, listening on live stream, listening later on the radio. You've never given your life to Jesus. You've never committed to him. Maybe you've belonged to a church. Maybe you've listened to Bible studies. Those things don't save you. It is a personal commitment to Jesus Christ. He says, repent. That means change direction and come and recognize that you're a sinner that needs to be saved. That's why Jesus went to the cross. He loves you so much. That the Son of God, the perfect Lamb of God, took your sins upon himself on that cross and died in place of you and for you. He was put into a tomb and he rose again. No one else did that. He proved that he's the son of God. He validated what he did on the cross. He conquered sin and death. And now he says, come. I am your hope. There is none other. You can't save yourself. A church can't save you. Your parents being Christians won't save you. It is a personal decision to come in faith to Jesus Christ. And all who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. If that's you, will you cry out to him today? Right where you are, right where you're sitting, sincerely in your heart, you say, Jesus, I come to you a sinner. And I believe that you died on the cross for my sins. And you're alive. You were put in that tomb. You're alive. You rose again because you're knocking on the door of my heart and I open my heart to you and I ask that you be my personal Lord and Savior. And I want to know you. I want to walk with you. I want to live for you all the days of my life. Thank you for this new beginning in Jesus' name. One of the things that we do at our services, if, if you're one that prayed that prayer, I know that there's, again, many in the coffee shop and on live stream. If you're listening on live stream, you made a commitment to Christ. Will you call us this week? Tell us the decision you made or email us. We want to encourage you, support you. If you're in a coffee shop or here, if you prayed that prayer, will you put your hand up and put it back down? Anybody at all? We just want to encourage you and pray for you. God bless you. Raising your hand doesn't save you. You're just saying, I've made a commitment for Christ. Anybody else? And I'm not going to prolong this. Father, maybe there's others. But I thank you for those this morning and at this service that have made commitments to you. I pray as they have this new beginning. That you would fill them with your spirit and with your love. That they would walk with you. And know that they belong to a kingdom that will last forever. And for all of us, Lord, that we wouldn't get complacent or lazy about serving you and knowing you and watching for you. I pray that we would keep our eyes on you every day and not get caught up in the deception of the world. But Lord, that we must continue in the scriptures and dependency on you. Lord, bless everyone here as we go our way. Lord, we do pray for Jesse that you keep him safe as he's in Peru teaching the students. Just bless him and his time there. 
Lord, I pray for those who are gone, maybe just trying to get vacation in before school starts or up at the eclipse. Bring them back safely to us. Lord, may we go out of this place rejoicing in you. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.